Hi, Dr. Walter. Thanks so much for being with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's an absolute delight for me. I wanted to start going back a couple years to the Breakthrough Prize ceremony. This was in, I think, late 2017. And it's this very glamorous ceremony held every year to honor some of the top minds in science. It's considered science's equivalent of the Oscars. And I, I watched a bit of the, the ceremony that you were honored at. I was wondering, how did you feel up on stage when you were accepting that award? It was an amazing feeling. Just being there, being, being honored for the results of our basic discoveries of how particular mechanisms in the cell work to keep the cell organized and, and every, everything well balanced. Get, getting up there and seeing this incredibly glamorous setting in front of me, the, the lights in your eyes, and uh, you, get, you get tremendously nervous, even so you had practiced your little speech. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it's such an opportunity to show the world, to show the, the, the people who are not necessarily scientists, how much fun and how important and how exciting it is to do research, which is basically an, an open frontier, right? We, we, we go where nobody has gone before. It is a, it is a true adventure and it's risk-taking. We go, we make discoveries, but of course, discoveries by their very nature are not predictable. Otherwise, there wouldn't be discoveries. So everybody is constantly out on a limb. And it's, it is so nice that this, this risk-taking, which I think has tremendous uh, opportunity for society, for our health systems, is being honored in such a, in such a, a really open and, and celebratory way. So and that, and that was the intent of the founders of this prize. It's not just to hand some, some prize money to, to, the, to the winners, but it's really to bring scientists into the limelight and to make it, to, to show how, how important an aspect scientific research and discovery is for society. What are some of the ways that science can be brought into the limelight? Because when I, when I read about your work, for example, it's not necessarily covered in popular media. Of course, ceremonies like the Breakthrough Prize get good coverage, and I'm sure a lot of audiences connect to it. But by and large, I'm sure one of the, the challenges that you have faced in your career is amplifying the discoveries that you've made so that the public can get excited about them, can learn how they can support them, and become aware of all that's being done. So what in your mind is a good way for researchers like yourself to, or even media or other types of people to actually amplify the discoveries that are being made so that, so that people can actually know all the exciting things that are going on and, and maybe join in? Well, I think you're doing the right thing here, Will, this, this, starting this forum in that to bring people who, who can learn, who have learned how to speak to the general public about their discoveries into a forum where we can explain why science is so exciting and so important. Scientists often suffer from the fact that uh, 
our daily life is it's very much in, in minutiae, right? That we're trying to figure out tiny little things that then make often often take a long time to add up to, to a bigger picture and to become directly relevant to, to society. So it's it's important to, to learn how to portray it, how to speak in a language that the general public can understand. And that's why I tell my graduate students and my postdoctoral fellows who make these discoveries that they should practice with their grandparents to explain them what they're doing and why it's important what they're doing. So there's a very, a very nice uh, quote from Sidney Brenner. And what this is, his quote is, I mean, think, think small and talk big. So in other mm. words, our daily life really is figuring out tiny little things, the role of one amino acid in a gigantic protein complex. Okay. But what's important then is to speak about it because this gigantic protein complex, we're studying for a reason. And we're studying because it's an important, important gear in the complexity of a living cell that allows it to, to grow, to divide, to differentiate, to form an organism, and also to get when, when it gets sick to become a danger for the organism. I think that that Sidney Brenner quote is a nice segue into the next question I have because presumably you you try to avoid thinking about or at least getting caught up in the the possible applications of your work. But at the same time, in order to get grant money and get the support you need, you also need to sort of talk big in those words where you connect what you're doing on a on a very small scale to to something much larger, such as solving different human diseases. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, although you say your research is not, quote, predictably translational, what are the, the possible ramifications of your research for our quest to cure cancer, our quest to battle neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, even the symptoms of aging? What do you see as the, the path forward based on what your lab has discovered? The path evolved over, over my career. Basically, what we did is we started out asking very foundational questions of how do normal healthy cells work? How does a cell know how much of a particular machinery, molecular machinery, it needs to be properly functional. And these studying these pathways led us down a route where it became increasingly obvious that these molecular mechanisms that we now understand in great detail and therefore can manipulate, we can tune them up, we can tune them down, that these mechanisms are essential for, for cell health and they play various roles in different diseases. So take cancer, for example. I mean, every, every cancer cell is genomically unstable. It accumulates mutation as it grows. And eventually, cancers become very aggressive. They, they make lots of mistakes. And this, these mistakes allow them to suddenly grow in regions of our body where they shouldn't be growing. They grow faster, they divide when they shouldn't be dividing. So they, they take over, they become selfish cells. 
that no longer listen to the rules of the body. And in doing so, they evolve to become more and more aggressive and then migrate, become metastatic. And this is really the, the horrible thing of this disease, right? that the cancers take over our, our, our bodies. But as they evolve, this process of evolution um, is not directed. They don't, they don't know that they will become very aggressive cells and they go down this process. There's no program for them to do it. They just keep making mistakes and the mistakes that give them gross advantages are being selected. But there are many other mistakes that they make that are just mistakes that then lie around on the floor. And the cell has now mechanisms by which it senses these mistakes and it, it band-aids over them. So in other words, quality control in a cancer cell, because it is genomically unstable, is messed up. And you have lots of products lying around there that are really only half functional or dysfunctional. And this is now a property that if we can make the cell realize that it makes these mistakes, it should die. Right? We should direct it into a path that it doesn't become a rogue cell that becomes a danger. And this is where our research of the cell quality machinery suddenly connects to a disease, right? We have now cells make mistakes. We've been studying these signaling pathways that sense when, when cells make mutations, make mistakes, and have the, the, the products to deal with. And we can use this as a sign of the cancer cell to now selectively direct it into a cell death pathway. And this is a property of every cancer. This is very different from, from normal cancer research where you start out studying cancer and then find out how many different versions of cancers are. This is very important right, for clinical application. But here we are coming completely from a different angle. We had no idea that when we started our project that we eventually would be studying relevance to cancer. And we now have an opportunity to really unify the, the, the problem that if we can sense these mutations, we can have very generic new approaches to cancer therapy. And that now, of course, needs to be translated into the clinic somehow. But we contributed the basic understanding that gives us the tools to see which pathways can be suitably affected. So we can hopefully do more good than harm yes. in, a, in a cancer setting. Right. And, and what about what about Alzheimer's and, and aging? I, I know aging is a very cutting edge field in many ways, and we're starting to better understand the mechanisms of aging. So could you give our listeners an idea of, of how the unfolded protein response and how these cellular malfunctions might connect to diseases like Alzheimer's as well as aging and and how a similar solution might come about. Yeah, some of our work on, on one of these particular pathways led us to develop a small molecule that blocks that signaling pathway directly. And it turns out it's a pathway just it's a sub-network sub of the unfolded protein response where cells sense that something's going wrong. They turn on this, this alert, this corrective mechanism, try to fix the problem. But as a consequence of that, this pathway seems to stay on afterwards and then becomes maladaptive. 
So in other words, it's now, now actually in the way, it has negative consequences. And if we block it now, because of our molecular knowledge, with a little drug that we have, a, li a little molecule, I would say, because it's not been uh, it's being developed as a drug, but it's not the medicine itself. It's a tool compound currently. And that tool compound, when now given to, to animals, seems to improve their cognition significantly. And it improves cognition even under, under, under many different disease or dysfunctional settings where our ability to form long-term memories has been impaired. So, for example, traumatic brain injury, concussions that you hear a lot about in, in football players, is a mechanical injury to the brain. And repetitive concussion lead to, to cognitive dysfunctions, memory loss, and eventually is a, is, a, is a strong indicator for the development of more severe neurodegenerative disease afterwards, such as Alzheimer's. And when we, when we give in, in, in mouse models this little molecule, which we call ISRIP, uh, their cognition is improved. It's actually, as a matter of fact, it turns back into a state as if they had never been injured. Mm -hmm. So what we've learned from this is that the consequences of the dementia that these mice experience is not, is not necessarily incorrectable. It's not necessarily lasting forever, but we can actually do something for it. So it's a, it's a situation in which this particular stress pathway, the, this, we call it the integrative stress response, has stayed on in this maladaptive state. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it now causes the downstream cognitive defects. And we can now, by blocking the stress pathway, we can eradicate the disease phenotype. And I think this is, again, something It came out of random, random observations, us studying the basic mechanism of how sensing the stress is being translated in the cell into activation of the stress pathways, then collaboration and communication with some of wonderful collaborators who have been studying traumatic brain injury or who, who studied this particular stress pathway by, by different methods and then, then we did and actually made the link to cognition. And this communication then led us as basic scientists to connect with this particular class of clinical conditions. So we now used this technology to a biotech company, Calico. We're developing it in to, to bring it into the clinic. And it's now in phase one trials. So healthy, healthy volunteers to see if there are any toxic effects associated with it, any negative side effects. And uh, so far it seems to be going great. And hopefully it'll go in phase two trials later this year for indications such as Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury, ALS, so Lou Gehrig's disease, so diseases in which cognition is affected, very different origins of the disease phenotype, all of them connected by the fact that this little stress pathway is turned on and actually leads to the cognitive defects downstream. Yeah. So it's a, it's a path that is a sort of a meandering path of discovery, 
that only in retrospect connected to a whole class of diseases. Mm. Very similar as our cancer work connects not to one particular cancer, but to a whole, whole class of cancers, yeah. if not all cancers. So by understanding how the, how the a healthy cell works, we now learn how we can affect and, and bring benefits to disease treatments. And at the, at the very least, that it injects hope into, into the conditions that are just terrible for when it happens in your families. Yeah. That, yeah, that I think is an example of inspiring work that, that the medical community is developing, but that people just don't know about. And so I think there's, there's a role for a new forum for scientists to talk about their findings or citizens to, to amplify those voices, which is a little bit of what I'm trying to do. So that's, I think, case in point, I, we need look no further for why, why this conversation is, I think, in a, a very important one. So that's, I congratulate you on those, those wonderful breakthroughs. And it's very exciting as, as someone who I'm sure will benefit from it in some way. It's, it's very gratifying to hear that. I wanted to shift now to talking about how listeners can get involved with the type of work you're doing or with advancing human health in general. For listeners who want to make the biggest possible difference in human health, say they want to help cure cancer or combat aging, is scientific research the path you recommend they take? Absolutely. I think all the, the future cures will come out of inc or in increase in our knowledge. Basically, scientific research is just doing that. We want to understand how cells work and solve these, these beautiful mir miracles um, that bio biology confronts us with. I mean, just if you just think of, I mean, we, are, we are made up of 10 to the 13 diff different cells, every, every one of our bodies. It's a huge number, right? That's about a thousand times more than we have people on the planet. Mm -hmm. And if one of these cells behaves selfish, such as a cancer cell decides, I, I just care about my own division, you have cancer, right? So... Think about that in the human population, right? If, uh, so it's amazing that we don't have our cancer, right? That cancer is still relatively, well, it doesn't happen as often as by these numbers you, would, you might expect it does. So we have these miracles. And I think that the most important thing everybody uh, should be trying is to stay informed and to stay curious, to, to really ask yourself, and learn about where these mysteries, these challenges lie. Every, every child growing up is a born scientist. They want to understand the world around them. And then for some reason, many people lose it as they go to school and other pressures arise. And, and the sheer curiosity of, of, of the child of, of wanting to understand how everything works is lost as we grow older. So as much as we can fertilize that again, nurture it, get back into a state of 
where we see the wonders around us and then support people who are trying to explore these wonders, right? And trying to explain them, trying to manipulate them, trying to, to learn as much about them as, as we can for the sheer sake of knowledge. I think that in the end comes together so often to un unanticipated discoveries that are then the breakthroughs that drive both science and society forward. I know we talked about how can scientists engage the public with their findings and keep the general public interested. But, but your response there makes me wonder something similar, which is how do we get potential young scientists and researchers to keep their curiosity and to not deviate from that and to really embrace it and give it their all? How do we do that? Well, we need to support them. And we need all, all the discoveries in my lab were made by, by the young scientists, my students, my postdocs, not by me personally. Mm -hmm. um, they are the ones who take the risk, who are adventurous, who walk out on a limb and accept the risks that we are not knowing where we're going. Right? Nobody knows whether they will make a big discovery just around the corner. So everybody follows this, this, this leap of faith into a career. And I think what we need to do is we need to make sure that these careers are there, that they are relatively safe, that there is a balance between doing the research, getting the funding in the future, doing the work in a way that you are not constantly locked in your office having to write grant after grant to keep your lab going so that that funding is available for the best. And, and that funding is not necessarily linked to the prediction that what we do will have a clinical or, or technological application. That, mm -hmm. that knowledge by itself is of great value and that it all will add up into a picture where we can do things in the future we couldn't even dream about today. So support young scientists, yeah. support them at, 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 at every level so they can have both a wonderful career and a life. I most definitely agree with that. It reminds me of your description of scientific research as an exploration. And you, I'm sure you've used that word. That's the word I had written down, but... I wonder what sort of qualities do you think or do you recommend aspiring scientists have if they're interested in in the discovery side, but also in possibly delivering these these really transformational clinical benefits? What personal qualities do you find are best for bright minds who want to go into science and research? Well, there's a number of them, and they, they all have to come together somehow. I think that the most important one is probably childlike curiosity. Just, just wanting to know, just being curious enough that this provides you enough motivation 
to keep going and to trying to find out how does this work. And then the question gets focused as we go along. And, and often the path of solving a problem or trying to find something out leads to failure. So I would say that 95% of the things we try in my laboratory don't work. So then it requires tenacity to actually not saying that it's my personal failure, but that's just part of the job. So it requires the ability to just live with a constant failure and just learn how to appreciate the process more than the end result. But when the end result happens and you actually learn something, you have these wonderful eureka moments where you're just, you're the first ever, right? Who knows this little detail that you've just learned from your experiment. And that is so wonderful and so rewarding, right? Like the exploration when you looked over, hiked for, for, for months through some snowy mountains and suddenly see this green valley in front of you. So that's how I sort of equate the, the scientific research process with that of the explorers when the map of the world was still a white, a white piece of paper. I, I wonder, I mean, I, I'm sure the Eureka moment is, is wonderful and sublime. And I, I'm sure we can imagine what it's like, but take us through one of those moments is there one that comes to mind in your career where uh, it was it was especially resonant with you and that just really stuck with you? And what what is that moment like for you in your career? It, it is it is just absolutely incredible and encouraging and and seeing because it demonstrates that despite the fact that we are teaching our students, and I'm also an author of a textbook. And mm -hmm. in the textbook, I mean, we, uh, we, we write down what we know, right? So, so we, 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 it reads like we, we know everything and we, we lie. I mean, if you we were writing honestly, we would write, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. But then nobody would write, would buy the book. So this is this, this moment when you see how much, how much room there is in front of you. So when I was a graduate student, for example, I was purifying this, this little protein complex. And just by a technical mistake that I hunted down, we discovered that the thing I had been working with for two years was not just a complex of a couple of proteins, but also had an RNA molecule in it. So it's a signal recognition particle, which brings ribosomes in the cell to the correct location. And this was one of these moments that it, it just changed my outlook, right? That here you have something and you think everything about it already. And then suddenly you discover it's far more complicated. It's far more complex. It's far more beautiful. And, and I will never forget that. That was one day, right? One, one moment when you realize that out of a mistake that you recognize something you couldn't record, you hadn't never seen before. And then this is, this is where serendipity comes into play, right? That rather than just ignoring it and saying, here's something that doesn't make sense, you try to find out why doesn't it make sense? 
if it's a paradox, there should be a solution to the paradox. And if it's something you cannot explain with this, uh, this, uh, this current, current knowledge that you have on, on this particular system, then nobody else can explain it either. So the answer of resolving the paradox cannot be boring. So everything becomes exciting. Yeah. Was that in the Stevenson Center at Vanderbilt? No, that was at Rockefeller during my PhD work. Oh, Rockefeller. Okay. At, uh, at Vanderbilt, I did organic chemistry. That's in, right. In the Stevenson building. Yes. <laughs> right. I've had classes there and it's, it's getting on the older side now. Yeah, it's not right. it's not the most admired building on campus but <laughs> it has a it has a certain charm i guess it had for me yes definitely i i think you made a a great point about how if if you want to go into research you have to be just as excited by the unknown as you become by knowing something and i i suppose that's sort of a a reflection of what you said, where you might have a eureka moment where you discover something, but discovering that there's so much that you don't know is perhaps even more exciting or just as exciting. And you need to nurture that in yourself if you if you want to have success and, and achieve great things as a researcher. And you need to acknowledge it. And when you see publications that seem to look like we understand everything, the, the moment you start digging in, in any one of these aspects of presumed complete knowledge, you will, you will quick, very quickly come to the, to, the, to the part where you find out, okay, I have to do experiments. Nobody will be able to answer my questions. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to sort of take stock for our listeners on, on what we've covered so far, and then I'll, I'll, I'll make another transition in our questioning. So we started, of course, with your story at the Breakthrough Prize ceremony and how there are moments of intense gratitude and excitement in scientific research. And you felt it at that ceremony and you have felt it in your lab, perhaps at late hours of the night throughout your career as much as that should motivate young scientists, they should also, as we just said, be motivated by the unknown and a constant exploration and process of discovery that might not always seem like it's paying off or leading to anything tangible for the world, but that given time and given, given quality practice can, can lead to something spectacular. And then, you know, we talked a bit about the, the promise of your work specifically and how specifically with neurodegenerative diseases, you guys discovered a certain stress pathway in the brain that you can block with a certain molecule that helps, that helps combat various cognitive issues. And we, we touched of course on the, the big possible applications of your research for not just one type of cancer, but many types and and then of course the the qualities of being a a good aspiring scientist having that childlike curiosity being uncomfortable with the unknown and also having the tenacity to push through the unknown and and fight for something that is a, is a true breakthrough 
So that's sort of my summary of, of where we're at so far. Wonderful summary, Will. Okay, thank you. I'm doing all right then. So I wanted to shift to talking a little bit about the nature of scientific research and how that process can improve. Because you talked about how to support young scientists. Part of it is giving them proper funding and making sure they're not at their desk writing grant applications all day. And that's one thing I've learned as an outsider looking at science and the research process is a lot of your work can often be the the clerical work of of asking for money and it can quite possibly take away from the good work you're doing in your lab. So how can scientific research and the systems that support it evolve to become more efficient and effective at helping scientists like yourself achieve breakthroughs? Well, I think the, the, the current, as, as you mentioned before, when you write these grant applications, you have to basically predict how your work will become applicable. And that's, that's just nonsense, right? Because we cannot predict what we don't know. We can say it has some potential for that, but often the, the granting agencies want to see more. They, they want to have it already realized. So from the kind of research that we are doing, what I think is really very, very powerful way of doing it for, for revolutionary changes in, in, in our knowledge, we just need funding for, for very basic understanding and just producing knowledge is a goal in itself and is value in itself. And that needs to change. And Howard Hughes uh, Medical Institute, the largest uh, philanthropic funder in the country, I think has developed a fantastic system of, of, of doing that by evaluating scientists basically on, on what they've done in the past, using the past productivity, creativity, excellence as a predictor for the future and then basically giving giving us research research funds based on the record of what we have been accomplished much much less emphasis on what you're going to do in the future and then this is not forever so you have a renewal at some point and then but then you have to have done something with the money that you received so one, one aspect then I would really promote is, is just we need to understand how, how cells work, right? How, how we need to solve the mysteries that we, in our respective fields that, that present themselves. Another aspect where I think we can vastly improve research support is to not, to not see things so siloed. The NIH is structured basically by, by organs. Our medical schools and the departments are structured by various disciplines. But, but what is happening now is they're all merging together. So whether today you're in a biochemistry department or a pharmacology department or a genetics department, it makes no difference anymore. You're all applying the same techniques. And similarly, 
our work touched so many different diseases that we, we, it, it would be terrible if we now had to, 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 to constrict ourselves to studying breast cancer only because what we do may just apply as well to multiple myeloma or, or other terrible cancers. And in that respect, I think the, the, the funding agencies should be far more flexible and far more integrative between, and, and just offer the, offer the opportunity for, for cross-discipline and cross-disease applications. Is there a role, I'm sure there is, but I guess how should universities evolve to make these disciplines less siloed? I, I think that's perhaps part of what you were getting at, maybe having better collaboration across different academic departments. What does that look like on, a, on an academic level? Well, it's, it's already happening, but it's happening but I'm concerned far too slowly. Yeah. And, and you talked about funding. I mean, we cannot do anything without money. So it all boils down to how resources are being distributed. And often they are distributed in a, in a, much, in a much too narrow, siloed fashion than, than they should be. Yeah. I know you mentioned Howard Hughes Medical Institute and how they're perhaps a leading case of, of an organization improving the funding process. Well, what will it take for perhaps the NIH or some other organization that funds a lot of research to, to get to that point you're describing of, of being more nimble, of allowing for more unpredictable and basic fundamental research? What, what does that process look like between where we are now and, and where you would like us to be? Yeah, I would, I would say just, just simplify applications and reward risk-taking, reward past accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And I mean, once you're, once you're established and you've done research for a couple of years, I think, first of all, every starting a scientist starts their own lab should just be funded because otherwise this is just that they need a, a starter to get going in, in, in their labs and we should evaluate five ten years later what they've done with the money and if they've been productive if they have made contributions and this funding should continue it would be a very simple a very simple system in which you just keep on funding the best minds based on their accomplishments. And uh, I'm not sure you I'm not sure you need even much more than that. No. <laughs> it would be administratively far easier to handle. It would not waste a scientist's time in trying to concoct projects simply for the reason of, of coming up with the money and, and predict outcomes that are just not predictable. And it would save an enormous amount of time, not just for those having to write the grants, but also for those having to evaluate these grants and yeah. then distribute the money based on what's, what's written on paper. I mean, a scientist running a lab should, who has done that for a while, I mean, they know their systems, right? They don't need to be put down for 
start writing down the most minute detail of, of, of something they're going to do. If they're good, they've done it for a while, they will know how to overcome obstacles. So the study sections and evaluation committees just have to have to trust a little bit more that uh, people will be able to, to solve problems as they occur because this particular applicant has shown how to do it before. I think for listeners who want to go into health as a field, obviously the case has certainly been made for going into research. But I, I think an important takeaway for our listeners is that if they want to help advance health as a, a profession, they can also go into the grant writing and funding systems and try to create this sort of change because fundamentally the quality and efficiency of medical research comes down to the money. And if the money is more available, obviously more money is nice, but if it's more accessible based on different criteria, then that, that can have great power for, for listeners who want to, to make a difference in this. I totally agree. Yes. So I, I wanted to shift to our closing questions now. And I like to ask all of our listeners, this, or all of our guests, this same question. And you, you can answer it with respect to health or any other area that comes to mind. What do you tell people who want to change the world, but who don't know how? Well, you have to start small. And you have to follow your, follow your passion, follow what you're good at. You can change the world by doing what Will is doing right now, right? <laughs> making, making science accessible to a broader community. Or if you're of different inclinations, you can go in the laboratory and start, start pipetting, right? You're, 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 you will be standing on the shoulders of, of many who have been there before, who phrased some of the questions already, put out models, how things may be working. And then you come in and you question these models and you, or you build upon them if they're good models. If everything works as advertised, great. If you find something that is a new angle and that, that behooves you how this might be working because it doesn't fit into our current way of thinking, then figure out why that is the case. What have we learned? What, what little secret is Mother Nature keeping there and, and not trying, not wanting to part from? <laughs> so, so it depends on, on your personality, on everybody's, basically what, what, you get, what you get daily pleasure from. I think that people entering science, you have to have joy in the process. You have to get, when you come into the laboratory in the morning, you have to be happy about it. That mm -hmm. society basically provides you a living for, for coming there and playing, exploring things, yeah. going, going into, into the unknown. And if you don't have fun, this becomes too much pressure. And then I think go out and make money. That's the wrong, the wrong track for you. So, so people have to find out what they're good at and what they enjoy to, to keep going, to keep going through the valleys 
that are that are ample between the peaks of discovery. Yeah. Yes. Continue through the valley so you can reach the peak at the other end Absolutely. of it. Right. Last question for you. What are we capable of achieving for human health? What are we capable of achieving? What I would like to achieve, let's start there, sure. um, is to make life better for people by producing knowledge, by producing insights that can be used perhaps by us, most likely by others, to be translated into curing or, or diminishing the, the bad effects of many of the current conditions. So some of these pathways I've talked about that are involved in the quality of ourselves shut down during aging. And this is basically an evolutionary artifact that if you're a worm and you're done, you're, you're getting old and you're beyond reproducing, laying eggs, then you're much better off if you die and for the species because then you can be used as food for the others. You're no longer competing for resources. So evolutionarily, this, this, this process of aging and shutting down our quality control got lost, got, got fixed. And yet, I mean, modern research says that we can take cells from an aged individual um, or from an aged animal and you can reprogram these cells, these old cells, and you can basically develop a new embryo out of them. So we can turn the aging clock backwards. We can turn these quality control pathways back on. We can provide, put cells back into balance and into a pluripotent state from which they have all the information and all the, 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 the quality of the components from which they can start the life cycle over. And maybe some of that can be applied um, in, in the process of, of aging also. And we've shown it for the mice now that we can uh, improve their cognitive function with the little isrit molecule I, I, I told you about. So we can take aging mice, this work in a, in a beautiful collaboration with one of my collaborators, Susanna Rossi, here at UCSF, we can take aging mice and we can, which have memory problems, and we can basically turn them back into a teenage, teenage behavior in terms of memorizing their way through a, through a water maze. So we can make the aging process hopefully a healthier process in, for, for, for people in the future. So I think if we can increase the health span, I think we could do a lot a lot of good and to prevent, prevent age-related diseases such as cancers, diabetes, uh, neurodegeneration, and so on and so forth. So there's an enormous societal burden and personal burden uh, for yeah. many individuals. Well, I think that is an That's exciting... Yes, I think it's a, a very enlightened hope and certainly an exciting way to conclude our conversation here. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Peter Walter. Dr. Walter, it was an inspiration to, to talk to you. And I think I speak on behalf of my listeners when I say we're, we're all cheering for you in your lab 
and we're excited to see all that all that comes next. Thank you, Will. It was a wonderful interview. Great Thank you. Job. Thank you very much.